If you will, I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We are in our continuing study, having been away for a little while in our verse-by-verse exposition of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we come now, believe it or not, to the last section of this great book. There will be, of course, some concluding remarks by Paul to those to whom he is writing. But in this particular section of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18, we have what has been famously called the believer's armor. The believer's armor. Or under the title of my message, not only tonight, but in a series of messages that will occupy us for for several weeks, prepare to meet your enemy. Prepare to meet your enemy. I'd begin this series by saying that the Christian life is a spiritual war. A spiritual war. It's a battle. And Paul says here in chapter 6, beginning in verse 10 and running down through to verse 12, these words, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then if you'd look down in verse 16 as well. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now I know that there are people in this world, you and I have spoken to them, we've heard from them, we hear about them on television and in personal conversation, who would say something like this, I don't believe in a personal devil. I believe that that's something that has been concocted by the church over time to suppress people, uh, to injure people, uh, to try to sway them in ways that aren't factual and that aren't true. Uh, There are no devils, there are no demons, there isn't any uh, spiritual forces of wickedness in the skies. And there are people who believe those very things, that they deny the reality of anything supernatural, whether it come from a good God or an evil demon. And there are people who would maintain that belief even in the midst of things that they might not be able to explain on a human level. But if you, like me, have any sense of divine authority... We believe what the Bible says. 
We believe that the Word of God, just as I have read to you, teaches that there is indeed a supernatural force, a person, who is called the devil, Satan, Satan himself. And the Word of God is very, very clear about the presence and about the power of Satan and his hosts, demon hosts, in the world today. Did you notice verse 11? Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That particular phrase, the schemes of the devil. Methodias to diabolu. The strategies, the methods, the schemes of the devil. Diabolos. Satan himself. And do you remember chapter 4, verse 14? Chapter 4 of Paul's letter to the Ephesians in verse 14 says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. You say, well, that says human cunning. So that may support the idea of those who say, well, we don't believe in a personal devil. We don't believe that there is a Satan out there. We don't believe that he has demon hosts who follow him uh, to the letter, who obey every command of his. This says human cunning. Yes, it does say that, but behind those who are cunning in their humanness, is Satan himself, who plies his trade, who does what he does in an effort to thwart anything that God wants to do in this world. And it comes from Satan, does any human craftiness, in an ultimate sense. Indeed, if you were to look in your Bibles in Ephesians chapter 1, we were introduced to the idea of a hierarchy of spiritual Beings that we call devilish, uh, the kinds of acts and persons who are indeed the devil and his hosts. In chapter 1, verse 21, this, this is the prayer of Paul. And he says that when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the power of God, what happened was that in Christ, through Christ, for Christ... Christ by the Father was, in fact, ruling and reigning as a result of His resurrection, according to verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. That is none other than a hierarchy of terms that speaks of the demon world. So the Word of God says that there are demons... And they are in a hierarchy of relationship to one another. There are those who are ruling. There are those who are authority. There are those who are power. And there are those who are dominion. Do you remember even in the Gospels when there were certain demonic activities in the journey of Jesus and the apostles in that day around, in and around Palestine? And there were times when they were asked authoritatively by Jesus, Who are you? And at one point, with 
one who was demonized, said, we are legion. And they named themselves, and they were demon hosts inside a person. The Word of God tells us this. So there are demons in the world who inhabit unbelievers, at least to some extent, and are in fact inhabiting some people in our world. And there are also demon hosts who are in the skies, who are in a hierarchy of relationship to one another under Satan, and yet subjugated to our great Christ, because he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Look at chapter 3. In chapter 3, God says, through Paul's pen in Ephesians chapter 3, that there are the unsearchable riches of Christ, according to verse 8. And the, the whole plan and purpose of God in bringing Jew and Gentile together is, according to verse 9, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's the plan of God in the church made up of Jew and Gentile to proclaim triumph or victory or, in this case, to produce through the church this, this revelation of the manifold wisdom of God and that that manifold wisdom of God might be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That is to say that the church is God's agent in the world to proclaim the wisdom of God even to the evil demons of the universe. That's what the church is to do. That's what the church is to be. To manifest the wisdom of God to the demon hosts in the world. Even in chapter 4 of Ephesians, it says about Christ himself, according to verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then this, verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended, speaking of Christ, is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. In order that he might be the conquering sovereign whose lordship extends over everything, even the demon world. I mean, if you break down chapter 1 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 and now chapter 6, you have a lot just in the book of Ephesians about the satanic world and about Christ's triumph over them. And so when we get to chapter 6, just from this book alone, we have a, a kind of Satanology, a, a doctrine of Satan that is formulating here and for which we must be aware because they are active in our world. And their whole goal, my friends, the whole goal of Satan and his demon hosts is to destroy the church, if they could. Their, their job, their method, their strategy, according to chapter 6, is to do everything they can, these, these rulers, these authorities, these cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, they are all about the destruction of Christians. Because Christians, of course, make up the church. 
Now, I don't know if, if you realize this, not just because of what the Word of God says about demon hosts, angelic beings who are demons, and Satan himself, and that they're all about destroying the church, but that means that your greatest enemy is the one for whom you must prepare yourself spiritually. That's why Paul says, put on the armor of God. You say, well, I often don't know anything of their being around me, and uh, I seem to be doing a lot of sinning just on my own, thank you. I don't even know where Satan is. I don't even know what he's doing. I seem to be sinning on my own quite nicely, as sad as that is to say. But do you realize that just behind that sinning, just behind the falling to that temptation, is Satan and the demonic world, the world itself, the world of sin and evil, who are behind the very temptations for which you and I fall prey? It's because Satan is all about destroying the effectiveness of the church to do all that he can to blunt the, the force, the power of that wisdom of God that is being proclaimed through the church to the world. That's what Satan is doing. My friends, don't delude yourselves. Satan is real. His hosts, these, these demons, this demonic activity, it is real. If it weren't, why? Pray tell, would Paul be saying, put on the armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the methodologies of Satan, of the devil? Why would he say that? It would make no sense whatsoever for him to give us teaching about what to do to arm ourselves against Satan and against demons if they aren't real. It would make no sense at all. It would be a fruitless enterprise. Why should we put on this, this various array of armament against the devil if there wasn't one? Here's what I want to do in the time remaining. I'll just introduce it tonight because we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper and we only have a few minutes. But here's what I want to do tonight. I want to give you ten passages. Ten passages. Now I'm going to read through them very, very quickly. But I'm going to give you ten passages that that the Bible teaches us regarding the person of Satan, this doctrine of Satan. I could go to many, many passages, but I want to go to these ten as key passages that will show us the idea of what the Bible teaches regarding Satan. Put them sort of together for you so that it can make up for you and for me the idea that not only Satan is real, but he actually does have methods. He actually does have a plan and a purpose to thwart the effectiveness of, of believers in general and of the church in particular. 1 Peter 5.8 1 Peter 5.8 is the first place that we can go. 1 Peter 5.8 This is a, a kind of, as I said, a, a Satanology, a, a doctrine about Satan that the Bible teaches us. And I, I want you to write these passages down. I want you to read them at your leisure. I want you to think through them because in knowing these things and in seeing what the Bible teaches, you and I will be better armed. Now, we're going to get to the armor of God. We're going to get to the believer's armor as we go through this series. But these are passages from outside this text in Ephesians 6 that will give you a, a kind of wider perspective about Satan himself. Look at First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. 
Be sober-minded, Peter says. He's closing out his epistle, the first one, and he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now that doesn't sound to me like uh, Satan is some benign creature who's more like a pet than a menace. And it certainly doesn't sound to me like someone could, if they have any belief in the Word of God and what it teaches, a denial of the existence of Satan himself. You better believe he's real. This is what God's Word says. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Stand against him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Satan is a roaring lion, the Bible says. And, and his, his arch love, his arch desire, is to seek someone, a Christian, to devour. He's real. Look at 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And of course, principally, he could very well be referring, and I believe he is, to at least this gospel of ours, right? The good news of Jesus Christ and his salvation of sinners. That Jesus Christ died, was buried, resurrected again from the dead to be ascended to the Father and to sit at the right hand of the throne of God on high and to one day return to the earth to judge the living and the dead. And indeed... Between the time of Christ's death and the time of that soon coming return, the tempter is all about tempting people so that Paul's gospel preaching to the Thessalonians would be in vain. You remember, Satan had his way, or so it seemed, uh, to the Galatians. Because you look at Galatians chapter 1, and Paul says, Look, I'm I'm shocked, I'm, I'm dismayed that this gospel that you had so quickly embraced that you're now losing a foothold of that gospel because you're apparently trying to believe another gospel. And in Galatians, that gospel is none other than Christ plus circumcision from the Judaizers. And he says here, I want to come and see you. I want to learn about your faith. In other words, I want to learn how you're progressing, not regressing, for fear that somehow if I come to you, I'm going to find out that the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. You know, it's Satan's idea, his promulgation, that the true gospel really isn't the true gospel and that people who believe they have the true gospel don't really have the true gospel. And if they don't have the true gospel, they ought to be following his version of the gospel and when you follow his version of the gospel, you've been tempted and you fell for it and the labor of apostles like Paul and others would be in vain. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. Our third passage. This is kind of like uh, what we might say is Satanology 101. I'm just giving you some basic truths about who Satan is and about what he's doing. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. The Bible says, now this is of course for a 
future day, even to us, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. And notice how powerful Satan is. This lawless one, the, the Antichrist, the, the Antichrist, uh, the lawless one is going to come in the latter days and in the latter part of the latter days, and he's going to come, the Bible says, by the activity of Satan, and then notice how Satan is described. He is described with all power energizing this lawless one, and with false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And God even, according to verse 11, allows them to believe a strong delusion of these unbelievers because they refuse to love the truth so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Satan will have them one day right where he wants them. And they'll be deluded regarding the gospel. And they'll be deluded because of the power of Satan through the lawless one. And he will concoct false signs and wonders. And with all wicked deception, he'll continue those who are perishing into eternal perdition in that same course. Satan, my friends, is powerful, far more powerful than we are as human beings, even believers. First Timothy. First Timothy chapter 4. Notice this, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. By the way, that's always Satan's activity. That's always his strategy. That's, that's clearly one of his main methodologies, and that is deception. We just read it in Second Thessalonians, and we're reading it here, 1 Timothy 4. He is all about deceiving people, and he does, th- does so through deceiving spirits, the Bible says, and teachings of demons. And how does that come about? I mean, we don't see demons, right? We don't see them. They don't have flesh and blood per se, They work through human cunning, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 4. So how do we we know they're there? Verse 2, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, false teachers. That's who it is. Satan plies his trade through deceitful spirits, these, these teachings of demons, and they are actually teaching through hypocritical liars who are insincere and whose consciences are seared. And here he actually gives an example of of what they're teaching that's wrong. Verse 3, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. That's, That's one of the heresies. How about 2 Timothy chapter 2? Verse 26, if you back up to verse 24 for context, it says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Verse 25, correcting his opponents. This is what the Lord's bondservant must do. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them, that is, those opponents, of the Lord's bondservants, the Lord's patient teachers, the true teachers, God may perhaps grant these opponents through repentance, 
that is a leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You see the word escape there? It means literally to awaken yourself. Paul is alluding to someone who would be asleep or drunk in some context. And the most crucial next step is to be awakened and restored to your senses. That's what it's talking about. Don't be dull. Remember Peter said, be sober-minded? That perhaps God may grant these opponents repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth so that they can escape the snare of the devil. The devil ensnares people with lies and false teaching so that they could, they could be held captive. That word held captive signifies the person has been captured alive. It's like a military term. Someone's been captured alive as a POW. A prisoner of war in Satan's kingdom. It's even used of birds taken alive had been ensnared by a fowler's nest. It's all about deception. It's all about God taking people who seemingly are unaware. They hear truth or supposedly they hear truth and it isn't truth at all. And they're swayed by it and they're taken away by it and they're taken captive by it. That's why you don't let just anybody in the pulpit, right? You don't just let anybody teach a Bible study. They have to be tested. They have to be proven. They have to have right orthodoxy, right doctrine. They have to have right maturity, right character. And you have to challenge them at the very core of their being. Do you know the truth? Tell me your doctrine. Tell me what you believe. And if it isn't in accords with godliness in terms of their personal character, and if it isn't in accord with right doctrine, you don't ever let them in a place of authority in the church either secretly or publicly, and allow them to do this very thing. Now, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, and you ought to be correcting your opponents with gentleness. He, he, he certainly says all of those things. And if perhaps God is willing, he'll even take some of these false teachers and by granting repentance, lead them to a knowledge of the truth. And that's why we have to stand up for truth. We have to respond to the truth. We have to defend the truth. We have to teach the truth. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That's one of the tests of orthodoxy. If you believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that he was a human being, and that he is from God, we talked about that this morning in John 8. There are some people who simply reject that idea. Your testimony, Christ, is not true. Verse 3, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus, that is, that Jesus has come in the flesh, and that He's from God, God the Father, then He's not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. A lot of Antichrists out there deny the truth of Christ coming in the flesh. And they're legion. They're all over the place. Look at chapter 5, verse 19. The latter part of it. The whole world lies in the power of the evil 
one. This is real, my friends. This is utterly real. You've got to be on the lookout. You've got to have your eyes open. That's why you have to know truth. That's why you have to know doctrine. That's why it's important. That's why we have fundamentals of the faith classes. That's why we have teaching from the pulpit. That's why we we train others in evangelism and, and counseling. We have to know the truth so that we can know error. Just a couple of more passages and we'll be done. 2 Corinthians. We'll go to 2 Corinthians and stay there because there are three passages I want you to see very, very quickly. Beginning in chapter 2. Paul in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians is talking about someone who apparently in the Corinthian church could have been the man in 1 Corinthians 5 who had been committing sexual immorality of a very heinous nature. Could have been that man, may not have been. But whoever it is, he's now wanting to repent. And he's manifested that repentance. And Paul says in verse 7 of chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, so you should rather now turn and Forgive him and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. How is it that he is sorrowful? Because you've inflicted the pain of your discipline process by the majority, according to verse 5 and verse 6. And he says in verse 6, the punishment by the majority is enough. You've done enough. It's done its work. He's repented. And because he's repented, you should now rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Now here's the test. Paul says the test is forgiveness. Now you've got to deal with sin when it comes, like the man in 1 Corinthians 5. He was blatant about his sexual immorality in the church, and apparently the Corinthians weren't dealing with it as they should. But now, even if this is this man, and it's that particular sin, or it's an entirely different situation, and it's another person, regardless, he's repented, and so now you should forgive him. And Paul's saying, now I'm going to go pendulum swing the other direction and see if you're willing to forgive. In one case, you weren't willing to confront, and now you're not willing to forgive. And so he says, I want you to reaffirm your love for him, verse 8. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. As an apostle of Christ, I'm going to forgive if you also see his manifest repentance. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And then notice this verse, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. Outwitted in what sense? Continuing to be unforgiving toward the repentant? Now, isn't that practical? Somebody's repented. He's manifest that repentance. He wants to change. He needs the comfort of the majority and not the infliction of the pain of the majority. That's sufficient. That's enough. And now he needs our forgiveness. Yes, you're to admonish the unruly, but you're also to encourage the faint-hearted, right? First Thessalonians 5. Now this man needs encouragement. Forgive him, restore him, reaffirm your love for him, throw a spiritual party for him. And Paul says, I'm going to put you to the test now. Because the very thing that Satan would want to do is drive a wedge in the fellowship of God's people by having a whole bunch of high and mighty people who are refusing to forgive, even though they themselves have undoubtedly been forgiven. Maybe this same sin, maybe another. But they've been forgiven. Now he says, if you don't forgive, that means that Satan has outwitted you. 
For we, he says, are not ignorant of his designs. Your Bible may say schemes. It's not actually the same word as what is used in Ephesians 6. It's a different word, but it's virtually synonymous. His schemes, his methods, his designs. I could say it like this. It seems to me that there are whole hosts of Christian people, yea, even whole hosts of churches that house those Christian people who are in fact ignorant of his designs. That's why we're doing this series. That's why we're in Ephesians 6. That's why we go verse by verse. That's why we don't ignore anything. And when Ephesians 6 comes along and it tells us, put on the armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, then we have to ask ourselves, well, what are those schemes? And we're going to talk about that next time, the schemes of the devil. We're going to talk about his methodologies, even before we get into the the armor of God. That's the way to combat it. But we also, we can't be ignorant of the designs of Satan. We have to know what they are. And I'm going to give you a list of some things that Satan does quite regularly to tempt us into sin. And I'm going to show us how we can have what the old Puritan Thomas Brooks said, precious remedies against Satan's devices. We need to do that. I fear, as Paul says here, we're not ignorant of his schemes, that in fact so much of the professing church is ignorant of his schemes. And they're falling to his schemes all the time. That's why the church is so weak as it is. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This one and one more and we'll be done. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God... We do not lose heart, Paul says, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning. There's our word again. Remember chapter 4 of Ephesians? We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience and the sight of God. In other words, we commend to your conscience the fact that we haven't tampered with God's word. We haven't played fast and loose with Scripture. We haven't practiced cunning. We're not tampering with the Word of God. Verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, notice this, this is Satanology 101, in their case, the God, little g, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now that's a mouthful, isn't it? But there is some loaded truth there. The God of this world, Satan himself, the devil, Diabolos. What's his his methodology? Here's one of them. Blinding the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. That's That's one of Satan's methods blinding the minds of unbelievers so that they don't see the light of the glory of Christ in the gospel. And you and I, we were in fact at one time blinded. Blinded by our sin, blinded by Satan, so that we would not as unbelievers see the light of the gospel. And Jesus Christ shined as the light of the world into that very gospel in our hearts through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit and we saw the light of the glory of Christ in the gospel of Christ and we were saved. That's the only way we can get out of the tyranny of the God of this world. 
And then one last passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. For such men, speaking of those who claim to be true apostles, but who are really false apostles, he says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. He says they're really not true apostles. They've claimed that I'm not a true apostle. They've said, oh, Paul, he's in it for sexual favors. He's in it for the money. He's in it for the fame. He's not in it for the, for the true work of God. But we are. And they, they try to disguise themselves. They try to dress themselves up as true apostles. When Paul says they're really false apostles, they're deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And then he says in verse 14, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light so it is no surprise if his servants these false apostles also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness their end will correspond to their deeds they'll be found out God will expose them in fact in 1 Corinthians 11 this amazing verse appears that says just this there are those who are false. When he says this, there must be heresies among you so that those who are true may be made manifest. You know why the truth is in the world? Because it sheds light on who the false are in the world, including false apostles. He says there must be heresies among you so that those who are true may be made manifest. They'll be shown to be false because the truth arises Satan's real, my friends. More real than you and I know. More real than I can even conceive. And he's not just uh, plying his trade in safe places. You know, people often ask me, well, do you think, you know, you think Satan uh, is in the brothels and he's in the bars uh, and he's in the saloons uh, and he's in the this and the that and you think of the worst places that you could possibly think that Satan might be? And the answer is, he already has those under his wing, right? Yes, he's there in a sense, but where else might he be? Where might he be in terms of the number one agenda on his list? He's not... He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. Where is he? He's involved in false religion and he's square smack dab in the church. That's where he is. And that's why there must be heresies among you, Paul says, so that those who are true be coming to the surface, bubbling up to the surface. There's the true. And we know that because there's the false. And how do we know that? Because Satan is doing everything he can to promote false doctrine, false religion, false conversion, false professions. And when he does that, God in his gracious, loving, careful sovereignty produces by the comparison of that which is false, true conversion. The true teaching of the word of God. The true teachers of the word of God. The true gospel of the word of God. And you and I can know what is false because we see what is true. And when we see what is true, we can automatically know what is false. Now there's there's only ten ten passages. That's it. That's all we can do tonight. 
But praise be to God if you and I believe in a personal devil, if we believe that Satan is real, if we believe his hosts are active in our world, then we will be so much further along in our ability to stand against his schemes. Let's pray together. Father, please help us. Please arm us. Please protect us. Please show us our ignorance of Satan's methodologies, his schemes. Give us a sense of of the knowledge of the kind of evil that is extant in our world, not so as to be experientially involved in such evil, but to know as Christian people, as believers in Christ, the evil that is in our world and how to combat it, how to stand against it, how not to to fall prey to it. Father, bring us back next Lord's Day evening so that we might know what some of these attacks are, where they come from, how Satan operates, what he does, so that we could have precious remedies from your word against these satanic devices. And allow us to know the truth in such a way that we can immediately spot evil and falsehood when it appears. Allow us to be noble Bereans in Acts 17 who examine the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. Allow us, Lord, even now in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, to rejoice in the salvation granted to us by Christ as we partake of the bread and the cup. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Men, come before.